The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big hello to anybody who's here for the first time. I know it isn't always easy to walk in the door, and so I just want to welcome you and congratulate you on kind of showing up. It can feel a little strange to walk into a new place and especially a Buddhist meditation center, can seem maybe even a little stranger than most. But we're not strange. You know, it's, it's funny how... <laughs> a little bit maybe, but... It's funny though how this, these teachings about being present, waking up, being clear, open-hearted, connecting with the way it is can feel like against the stream or something that's unusual. And how being distracted, being reactive, being lost in thought can seem commonplace or maybe like an effective strategy before being a human being. I mean, when we say it out loud, it's sort of strange to think, well, if only... If only I weren't sensitive, you know, a sensitive human being, I'd be so happy. If only I didn't feel and didn't see and didn't hear and didn't think, then I'd be so happy. <laughs> yeah, just It's interesting in the, the Buddha's teachings, it can seem appropriately like a lot of what the Buddha's talking about is being attached hurts. And it's not a bad summary of the Buddhist teachings, but it can lead to a misunderstanding that, oh, okay, if being attached hurts, then, and we make a, the mind makes a leap, that means I shouldn't be here, you know, because I'm around things that I have opinions about. And so, and that hurts, having opinions, having fixed ideas about things. So, if only I weren't here in this world of experience. And that can seem the, like what the Buddha might be pointing to, like, get me out of here. Because here, I have a lot of attachment. Here, my life, with my experiences, my relationships... I have a lot of reactivity. I have a lot of fixed ideas. So please, somebody, get me out of here to some place where I won't have reactivity or fixed ideas or opinions, right? But is there a place like that? Anybody know a place like that? (laughs) I don't know a place like that. I just know this place, you know, having a body, having relationships, being in this kind of world that's messy, to say the least, right? a lot of actual suffering, swirling sometimes right here and sometimes around us, not sometimes, all the time around us. There was once a time a general, a very well-known general at the time of the Buddha, went to see the Buddha and he said something like, uh, I hear that you teach about non-doing. And I want to get 
I want to get this clear. Is that what you teach? Is that what you're teaching? Like passivity, not 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 doing, non-doing. And uh, you know, the general was respectful. Said, "I don't I don't want to misrepresent you." So, what is it that you teach? And the Buddha said, "Well, in regards to some things, I teach non-doing, and in regards to other things, I teach doing. In regards to a third category of things, I teach." Annihilation. So it's sort of interesting, but it when when you look, it it kind of makes sense. Like in some moments of today, right? It's not that unusual. We were practicing not doing, right? We had an inclination to say something, and the wisdom in the mind was saying, "Honey, don't do that. Don't say it. Keep your mouth shut." <laughs> But sometimes, hopefully today, there were other movements in our mind, in our heart, that were quite trustworthy, like moments of appreciation, moments of gratitude, moments of wanting to help, or whatever. And the wisdom in the heart and mind said, go for it. That feels right, that feels good, that seems wholesome. Please take that into action. Express that motivation. Let it arise as action in the world. Say something, do something out of this wholesome motivation, this wholesome intention. So there the Buddha, the instructions would be about like, yeah, that's something good to do. And annihilation might be something like having wrong view, like, where it seems quite appropriate to be really fixed in my point of view. It's not so much the point of view is right or wrong, but the mind being really dependent on being right, that dependence, what sometimes we call like being fixed or being attached, maybe that should be annihilated. Maybe we can be a human being with all kinds of different opinions, ideas, without our mind needing to be, having to be dependent or fixed on any idea or opinion or view. So maybe the fixedness or the dependency or the identification or attachment, maybe that's something that would be good to annihilate, to abandon, to remove, to not put up with. I don't know. We can check that out. So I thought it might be nice uh, in terms of the talk tonight just to reflect a little together about um, what might be some of the things, like in terms of doing, because like I said, there's maybe more often a stereotype in terms of the Buddhist teachings around not doing, you know, just allowing things to be, right? That's a phrase we hear a lot, just allow things to be. Oh, yeah, that's just a thought coming and going. Oh, that's just a sensation in the body coming and going. Just let things be. Just acknowledge this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. But although that's a really, maybe, especially when we're sitting, a useful instruction to remind ourselves with, but out in the world of relationship and in the world of duties and responsibilities, that won't work. Does that work with your kids? <laughs> no, they want you know, action, engagement, 
showing up, leaning in, making choices. And to not do that would be actually quite harmful to somehow lay that trip. Mommy's not going to decide anymore. Mommy's just going to let things... <laughs> I'm making fun of Leah, who's we just chatting at the beginning about Leah stepping forward as one of our youth teachers for this next academic year when the youth programs begin again in September. And she has a couple children. And just that, I mean, that's just, uh, it's not just people who have children, right? We all have this world is asking us to lean in, to engage in, in little and big ways. And it can be actually a bit of a unhealthy disease, maybe we could even call it, of somehow thinking oh, we're just too far, gro- too far gone to show up, to engage, you know. Or it's not my problem. It's not my responsibility. Yeah, I care about the problems in the criminal justice system, but it's not really my responsibility or I care about inequities in our society, but it's not really my... Or I care about that trash on the ground, but it's not really... I didn't put it there. You know, whatever it might be. My friend who's dying, or my, you know, the elders on our block, the older folks on our block. Yeah, they're probably lonely, but, you know, it's really, that's the job of their family, their extended family, to take care of. So we have all kinds of justifications for not leaning in because the truth is, whether it's our children or our cat or the neighborhood or the wider world, engaging is complicated and messy. But you know what really makes it messy isn't the engagement because engagement can be quite beautiful and fulfilling too. What makes things messy is the Uh, expectations or the attitude, the motivation behind the engagement. So the Buddha teaches, sometimes he calls it a gradual path. He likens it to, I don't know how they knew this at the time of the Buddha 2,600 years ago, but to the continental shelf. You know, maybe I guess the people who fish a lot knew this, so then maybe it became more common knowledge, but He says, in the same way that on the shoreline, you know, the water gets deeper and deeper, but in a gradual way, and then you hit the continental shelf, and then there's a pretty sheer drop-off. I don't know if you know this about most coastlines, you know, it's sort of a gradual, 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 and then a, a real drop. He said, well, that's like the path, that's like the practice we're doing, right? Another place in the discourse, he said, yeah, this practice is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. That's like, yeah, there's a real effect. You're getting, you start off, and even after a little bit, you notice some depth that you didn't have when you first started. And then in the middle of your practice, maybe several years in, you're in a deeper place. And then maybe decades in, you're in a deeper place. But at some point, and we don't know when we get to the continental shelf and then there's that sheer drop-off. Because it isn't just about, oh yeah, I'm just, I have a little bit more space in my life. Ten years ago, if something like this were to happen 
I'd be really reactive. But now, the same thing happens. I just have a lot more space, a lot more equanimity. I'm not as reactive. Or even if I do lose it, my mind, my heart comes back into balance much quicker than it would have so many years ago or whatever. So we see this, but there are places in the practice where it's more of a, a significant drop. And the Buddha maps out this gradual path. And interestingly, and this is kind of the point I wanted to make tonight, that gradual path can be understood as a, you know, a series of ways of engaging life. Because sometimes, maybe more often, we talk about it as a series of letting go, or of, of backing away, holding back. But it's also nice to talk about it as ways of showing up. So the first thing, right? interestingly, this is not some kind of sly trick, but the first engagement, and here's the other point before I mention the first engagement, is this whole gradual path has a particular flavor or a particular taste. It's not bitter. (laughs) It's not like, bitter medicine, like, yeah, i got to take the medicine. Don't really like being a Buddhist. I don't really like being mindful, but I have to, you know, because I've been promised this sheer drop-off at the end. <laughs> so I'm going to put up with it. No, but the, the path itself, itself has this flavor of ease, this flavor of release this flavor of freedom. I mean, it's literally, this is not like metaphoric, there is a thread of pleasure all the way through the practice. And it's really important to hear this because when I say the first engagement, right, in doing this engagement and showing up and getting good at this engagement, we do it because it makes us happy. So I, I warned you. So the first engagement is generosity. Because when you hear that, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, generosity's hard. You know, and I only do it because I, I should. You know, and I know there are people who have less than me, or I know there are a lot of places in the world that need my time, need my resources. But boy, I'm really looking forward to the time when everything's taken care of so I can keep my stuff, all of it. Or, you know, we, it feels threatening. I mean, even, you know, people with children. It's like, I just want my own time. Or our partners, we have that relationship too. Now, this is my time. Now, I'm not, I mean, there's, there's definitely a place for balance in all of this. So I'm not... But as each of us, not because it's a should, but because we're interested in this thread of happiness, this deepening path of peace and release, then maybe we'll have enough curiosity to check it out tonight, tomorrow. Okay, no one's making me do this. I'm just going to explore operating in my life as it is actually unfolding 
with a, heart, a generous heart a little bit more, and I'm going to see whether a kind of release, a flavor of happiness or peace or ease or anything that has any flavor of you know, freedom comes with it. Is the Buddha correct that practicing generosity, living with a more generous heart, seeing stinginess as a direct path toward contraction and suffering, (coughs) excuse me, and seeing the cultivation of contentedness and generosity as a path towards happiness. So when we cultivate generosity, we're not doing it to make others happy. And I, I know it sounds ironic to say this, but it's, I don't know if selfish is the right word, but we're not neglecting our own well-being, cultivating generosity. So check it out. And this, this is something, it's not like we get to the end of it. Okay, I'm a pretty generous person. I'm done with that. Let me go to step two. <laughs> right? You're not going to like that either. <laughs> <laughs> because it's this place. And remember, it's not about how much time you give or how much money you give or how much you let go of and live simply and, you know, I just have one shirt and one pair of slacks and, you know, and that's all or, and I'm better than you because I have less. <laughs> so it's, it's not that. It's, it's really about this quality of the heart because one way or another we're in the pursuit of happiness. Whether you're some corporate titan trying to overtake this and that, and have more power and more wealth, or whatever trip, whatever scheme we're running, we're pursuing happiness. Some of us very ineffectively, (laughs) maybe some of you, hopefully some of you, more effectively. So when the Buddha says, you want to be happy, first and foremost, most direct, most available way, for human beings to be happy is the cultivation of a generous heart, right? And just see if it, if you get more results doing that than whatever else you're doing to get your happiness. Just check it out. Like this is the most famous of all the Buddhist phrases is ehi pasiko, come and see. Or maybe in more common language we'd say, check it out. Does it work for you? Is what I'm saying of use to you? Check it out. See if it helps. So the first thing he would teach people, oh, you want to be happy? Well, I know a thing or two about happiness. The most direct way for mundane happiness, nothing highfalutin, just ordinary good things happening to you, for you, that make you happy, real gross level of happiness, cultivate a generous heart. See if you can sustain that spirit of generosity for as many moments in your day. So that like even when you're brushing your teeth, there's a way to brush your teeth that's stingy and there's a way to brush your teeth that's generous. 
There's a way to chop vegetables that's stingy and a way to chop vegetables where you, you really have that, you're just showing up in a generous way. Walking down the street, stingy, generous. Talking to another human being, stingy, generous. Trying to get something. You know, a lot of the time in life, in diff- different moments, we're trying to get more than we're giving. So try to always give more than you're getting. And the interesting thing, according to the Buddha, is that you might end up feeling like you got more than you gave in a sort of paradoxical sense. I mean, one thing we could do if we had a lot of time is have everybody report, like take a few minutes, think about who who you have run into in your life that just seemed to be naturally a very generous person. And then, kind of as you reflect on the person, on the memories of that person, did they seem like a, relatively speaking, happy person or, relatively speaking, unhappy person? Because the thing is, if we're... Remember, generosity is an internal state of the heart. So it isn't... You can be the most stingy person in the world and have given millions of dollars away or raised a lot of kids, you know, but it was like, was, it was done in a stingy way, like, oh, poor me way. And be really pragmatic. So like when we catch yourself, like if you really pick this training up and you catch yourself being stingy in some moment, then hating yourself for being stingy isn't a very generous thing to do, right? A really generous thing to do in that moment is go, oh, honey, you're being stingy, and it feels like this. This is how that is. You know, we'd show up in a generous way. Let's, let's check this out. Let's see what's going on here. Is this helping? Is this the way I want to live? So in terms of engagement in the wider world or the sticky places, instead of having an exact plan, okay, from now on I'm going to do this and not this, it may be, well, let me explore engaging that place in my life and just creatively, what, what would it be like to engage it with a generous heart? Not a heart that feels stingy like I don't have enough, Because what's the proximate cause for generosity? Some internal sense that I have something to give. That inner sense of abundance. Like we have love. We have our presence. We have our goodness. We can always bring that to the moment. We have something to give. Because a lot of times we move through life not with a sense of inner abundance, but with a very clear sense of not having enough. It's not fair. It's not okay. And we're looking to our relationships and to the situations in our life to kind of fill some vast, empty void, you know, because I don't have enough. It hasn't been fair. 
Now the second place for engagement, um, the Pali word is sila. So generosity is dana, in case you hear that word, D-A-N-A. And then the word sila sometimes is translated as ethical conduct or morality or integrity, even restraint, but in a, in a really positive sense, like this capacity, right? I have beastly nature to just take what I want, even if it's not mine, or to take advantage, to manipulate, because I can, because in a particular situation, let's say I have power, so I use my power to get what I want. And restraint is like seeing all of those beastly tendencies that we just have because we're animals, you know, and animals have all kinds of energy, and it's not all altruistic, right? And to be able to, res- to, res- to refrain from acting out those beastly habits or beastly tendencies. Like, oh yeah, I feel like taking that nice thing, but I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm, I feel like insulting this person because they insulted me, but I'm not going to do it. I don't think it's going to ultimately help anybody. I feel like throwing this person out of my heart, but I'm not going to do it because they're probably, as much as I hate to admit it, doing the best they can right now. And if, the, if it could be different than what it is, it would be. But it's this way now. They're acting this way now because of some set of causes and conditions. I don't know what they, the kind of day they had or the kind of life they're having, but I can bet that they are the way that they are right now because of causes and conditions. So I'm going to refrain from throwing them out of my heart, judging them, hating them. And the Buddha says, so Donna and Sila, like, you want to be happy? Cultivate, make this commitment to non-harming. And just like with generosity, there is never an end to how we can refine this commitment to non-harming. Because the immediate thought might be something like, well, I haven't killed somebody in a long time. I haven't even hit somebody in a long time. Right? And then we kind of think like, okay, I've made this threshold, so I, I'm pretty good around that moral training of non-harming. I don't cheat in obvious ways. But really, there's so many ways that we're complicit in suffering and causing harm. And the thing is, we can either turn that into a big burden, oh, God, I've got to pay attention to that too. But remember... And this is for us to check out. Is this a thread of happiness? If, is it true, like have an open mind, is it true, the more I get curious about non-harming, the more I get curious about the power of restraint, of holding back when my actions, my words seem like, I don't know, if that's going to be helpful. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to refrain from acting out my impulse, saying what I'm inclined to say, doing what I'm inclined to do, because of this commitment to non-harming. Does that refraining make us happy? And here's, here's what might give you some, uh, some sense of an answer to that rhetorical question. Think about all the times we just 
acted out our impulse, said the first thing that came to mind, you know, like to our partner when we, our buttons were pushed, or, you know, other impulsive, I mean, we can, I can say something in a heated moment to my partner, my spouse, that can have reverberations, very painful reverberations for months, right? And probably, again, it would be really interesting if we had the time to hear from people like, I I think Sylvia Borstein, some of you know her, she's a well-known Buddhist author and teacher in this tradition, the Theravada or Insight Meditation, Vipassana Meditation, what we call this lineage here in the West. And she once was teaching a sitting group like this, weekly practice group, I think out at Spirit Rock, and she asked something like, well, how many of you are still feeling some ouch from something you said a week ago? Like when it comes to mind or when you see that person, there's still some real pain, right? Most of us would probably can think of something we've said in the last, you know, at least seven days. And then she kept going, you know, a month ago, a year ago, five years. 10 years, 20 years ago. I bet there are people, maybe many of us, when we bring to mind some moral lapse, even 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, 59 years and 325 days ago, you know, something we did, oh yeah, and even today, there's an ache, there's a reverberation an unpleasant reverberation from that moral lapse. So the opposite would be some persistent, conscious uh, valuing of non-harming and valuing the capacity to refrain from acting out our impulse. In Buddhism, this is really, I mean, we don't make a big deal of conscience, like having a, a moral conscience. But in Buddhism, this quality, it's hiri otapa, this wholesome concern, wholesome regret. The fact that our heart is touched from the past misdeeds and it lives on in our heart like, honey, be careful. You know, be careful. Is this going to help? Or are we going to live to regret what we're about to do or what we're about to say. That that's actually that concern, that moral concern, is liberating. Uh, One monk, uh, English monk, that I really like, he says it's like uh, not having that, it's like driving a car without brakes. Right? And so when we realize we have really good brakes, that feels good. Like if we're going to be in relationship with other human beings, if we're going to have an intimate relationship with another human being in particular, or raise children, or dance in the world of business, or you know all the things that human beings do, it's really nice to have a good set of breaks. So that our relationships are relationships with real integrity. It's like another way it's talked about in the tradition that when we enter a social situation, whatever it might be, we enter it knowing like a kind of 
what in Western psychology we might call self-esteem, we enter a, you know, a social situation or some kind of situation, and we know, we trust our heart, like, I know how not to do stupid things. So I don't, I'm not afraid of having taken on this responsibility or interacting with these people or doing these things over here because I trust my heart most of the time that when I feel like doing something unskillful, I trust that there will be this moral force that's like internalizing a wise, kind parent. Honey, don't do that. Remember? You did something like that 25 years ago. How did that work? (laughs) It didn't work. So think carefully. And even almost like giving us a warning signal, you're entering the situation, you know, like if we're in a committed relationship, monogamous relationship, and then we're around somebody who's really attractive, right? It's very appropriate to, for a warning sign to kind of come up in the heart, like, hey, there's a lot of value in this committed relationship, and it would really hurt if you did something that hurt this person, betrayed the relationship. So, honey, be careful here. Because you're a sexual being. You're a being that is attracted. And that being is probably a being that's attracted. And you want to be careful here. Because it's easy to make mistakes. Right? That's sila. And this is a real cause for happiness. Like, for me, I've always felt... I, 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 I uh, appreciate my parents because they were pretty, they had a pretty uh, powerful, clear moral sense. And so they modeled that their life in their lives. And a lot of that we can pick up, which is nice, instead of having to learn it the hard way by making mistakes. Right? And so I really like that, that I'm not too worried that I'm going to take something that's not mine. And I'm not too worried, you know, now in my relationship with Wynn for 25 years, married for 25, but living together for 27. You know, I'm not, I mean, I don't think we should ever be overconfident, but I'm sort of like pretty confident I can deal with this world of sexuality without doing something harmful to myself, to my partner, to another. I feel pretty confident, at least in the situations I've had to navigate up to now, that, yeah. And just generally, you know, speech, you know, not yet there, 100%. I mean, I don't gossip really, you know, but still, it's easy to, it's really, I mean, speech is so subtle, it's very easy to sort of be a little bit off in our speech, but just, this is a real place for happiness for me. Like, I trust the goodness of my heart. I trust my heart's connection or commitment to non-harming. Not harming for myself, not harming for others. And we talk about it in Buddhism as the bliss of non-remorse. You go to bed at night, right? There's not a lot of things haunting my mind, my heart, because I acted out unskillfully and harmed others. And we want to tune into that. So if that's true for you, can you notice that good feeling of being skillful, being committed to non-harming? 
let it really kind of infuse your heart with happiness. Same with generosity. And this is not, you know, this is just the beginning. So there's the happiness, the doing of dana, of generosity, and getting the rewards of dana, living with a generous heart. There's this deepening commitment to non-harming and the power, excuse me, the power of restraint or the power of refraining and really feeling the power, the good power of trusting your the goodness of your own heart. And then there's... Um, it's interesting, the next thing, the next engagement, you like this one. This is the one everyone likes, right? Because I mentioned, the Buddha says, he, t- he taught, like when people weren't interested in spiritual life, they just wanted to be happy. You know, it's not like, I want to be good. or No, they want to be happy. He says, okay, you want to be happy, instead of being a manipulative business person, practice generosity, practice moral conduct. Really take it up as a cause for happiness, and, and it will deliver. And then the next thing is you have to engage gratification. Right? So when good things come your way, people respect you because you've been practicing generosity and moral conduct. Or you have some success in your business. Or somebody actually loves you and wants to be around you in your life. Right, And then the, the next practice, like engagement, is to really receive. It's the flip side of generosity. Now you have to practice letting it in. Now the Buddha doesn't say this is the end all. None of these are the end all. The happiness of generosity, the happiness of morality. The, he calls this heaven, but not heaven like somewhere else. But like when good things happen. To really Practice noticing, being intimate with the experience of gratification. Somebody saying something nice. Okay, that feels like this. I'm going to really be here with this experience. Oh, yeah. This is the experience of gratification. This is the experience of something showing up in my life that I want, that's pleasant, that's good. And it feels like this. We're... It, not in an idealistic way. We're just being intimate with it as it actually is. We're not dismissing it. A lot of times we dismiss it. It's almost like we're embarrassed when something good happens to us. And the Buddha, as a spiritual practice, said you need to train your heart to have a very clear, intimate, honest, non-neurotic relationship to gratification, to beautiful, good, ordinarily good, beautiful things happening to you. There's something to learn there. There's a particular happiness to connect with there. It's not an end-all happiness, but it's not nothing either, right? So we have to really be there. So this is the gradual path, really connecting, learning about the happiness of living with a generous heart. And if you want, the flip side of stinginess is not the way to happiness. So let me check out generosity. Because we learned the first, uh, the thing about stinginess first. It's like it doesn't work to be stingy. Even if you don't have anything, even if you really have bad fortune and you're in poverty and you're being oppressed and, you know, really one bad thing after another, 
living with a stingy attitude doesn't help in that experience. We're running out of time, but this is a good story. You know, this is after the time of the Buddha, but a lot of stories, I think it, it came up after the time of the Buddha, these collection of stories of the Buddha's past lives. The Jataka tales are called. Yeah, th- they did develop, but this is, it's possible, it's, I doubt it, but it's possible that the Buddha mentioned this story, but I don't think so. I think it was hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha when they were developing the Jataka tales. And so one time, the Buddha-to-be, so before the Buddha was born in that life where he woke up, had deep insight, so some previous lifetime, as the story goes, he was in hell, right? So not, not a human being, but in some hell realm, one of the really torturous hell realms, you know, in the tradition, again, it's just a story, but it's a fun story. So he's like (laughs) raging fires, pulling a cart with a bunch of other people who are in hell like him, you know, something heavy, no wheels, you're just dragging along. Some of of us, those of you my age, you know, we grew up watching Moses with Charleston Heston. And the pharaohs were, they were building the pyramids, you know, and the, you remember that? The Jewish people were having to drag these big stones that they used to build the pyramids. Anyway, that's sort of that image. And then the guy next to him, who's also in hell, falls, you know, and the demon guards just beat the guy, right? And the Buddha helps him up. And because the Buddha does something generous, he immediately has to leave hell because Hell doesn't include generosity, right? You can't have a generous spirit and be in hell. You have to have the oh, poor me idea. Then you're in hell. So that's just, as a teaching story, it's really interesting. Like, "Uh uh-oh, can't be here, got to (laughs) go. Wait, I wanted to help that guy. (laughs) Sorry, not allowed. So, cultivating generosity, cultivating this commitment to non-harming and that capacity to refrain from, from violating this value of non-harming, knowing how to hold back when something we might do might cause harm for ourselves or others, and then knowing how to receive, oh yeah, this is gratification, this is night feeling. And then the, the fourth is the happiness of understanding the drawbacks. See, you can't really investigate the fourth kind of happiness without doing the third kind of happiness. But you really have to let life in, the pleasure, the ordinary experience of gratification, drinking a cool glass of water when you're thirsty. Oh, this feels nice. Like really being there in the experience of when you're eating and hungry and what that feels like when you get to lie down in a safe, comfortable bed when you're sleepy. That feels good, right? When it's been really humid and then it's cool. Oh, that feels good. Letting it in. And then the next is contemplating the drawbacks. Now again, it's not about being morbid or depressing or negative. It's just seeing what it's doing is beginning to tease out the mind's dependence on pleasant things happening. Yeah, it's really nice 
but it ends. So now you tune into like, oh, that was a great meal, and now it's over. You know, or that was a great movie, and now it's over. Or I had this really nice interaction with my friend. We went out and played, and now that's over. And it really, it's like the mind is beginning to sense when it knows the drawbacks like, doesn't really make sense to be dependent on that. Doesn't make sense to turn gratification into something more than what it is. That was a nice interaction, but isn't, it isn't really anything to build my life on. Because then we ruin it, right? Like, you know, I'm looking at Leah, who's got kids. Like, you have a really sweet interaction with your kid, and you might, like, but if you want more, if you want your kid to keep treating you exactly that way, it gets weird really fast. <laughs> or your partner, right? Or the weather, or whatever it is. It, it, you, we spoil so many things. So understanding the drawback, it's really like, knowing that we have to really let the beauty, the goodness, the pleasure in. But because we're contemplating the drawback, we don't cling as much. And, and we're, it kind of rounds it out. Like you're watching just an amazing sunset, and then it's disappearing. But because you know you've really contemplated the drawback of sunsets that they end, Right, it makes it more pointed, and in, in a way, the beauty's more beautiful because you're not clinging, you're not expecting it to really be there for you forever, or that this particular sunset or this particular interaction with a friend is somehow, you know, guaranteeing you forever happiness. No, no, it doesn't. And then that turns the heart towards renunciation. And the Buddha doesn't talk about renunciation until people really have some wisdom about these first four things. The happiness of generosity, the happiness of moral um, conduct, commitment to non-harming, and the real happiness that arises, the happiness of knowing how to receive when good things come our way, to let it in, see it for what it is, to let it touch the heart, and the happiness of the drawbacks. Like, oh yeah, I'm not going to waste my energy building my life around this nice experience. Or any experience. That's the flavor of renunciation like, in the world but not of the world, as it's said in the Bible. Maybe some of you know that phrase. It's like, I'm not giving up on the world, but I'm not expecting the world to make me happy. And I'll just end with this phrase I use a lot from an article by Susan Piver, I think she pronounces her name, where she talks about a time where she was at a, like a party and someone started talking to her about, oh, I'm in a new relationship and the person is a lot younger than me and this person wants to move in with me and I don't know and talking about the relationship, and then turns to Susan and says, do you think it can work? You know, that's kind of the question we'd ask someone about a new relationship. And she was surprised herself with this answer that she gave this person. Well, of course it can work. 
as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. And this is the flavor of renunciation, the spiritual happiness of renunciation. That do you think being a human being with relationships and sense experience and 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that come with life, do you think it can make me happy? And the Buddha, you know, might say something, of course, being a human being can make you happy, can be, you can be happy here, as long as you don't expect life to be the cause of your happiness, as long as you don't expect experience to be the cause of your happiness. Because happiness isn't caused by experience. Experience is too ephemeral, too not in control, not governable. We can't lock it in. Have you ever locked it in in any satisfactory way? No. And real suffering comes in trying to lock in happiness with sense experience. Like expecting our partner to make us happy, guaranteed. Expecting your kids to make you happy. Expecting your body to make you happy. Expecting the weather to make you happy. Expecting your job to make you happy. Expecting politicians to make you happy. It doesn't work. Right? We should know that by now. But we're good at forgetting. Or not learning our lessons. So I talked a little too much, but we do have five minutes enough time for one or two of you to share some thoughts from your own practice with the group or questions that you have. So what comes to mind? What have you been learning from your own life experience around these four kinds of happinesses that I mentioned tonight? Yeah, John. Thank you. I was thinking of generosity when you were talking, Mark, and and I've been lucky I'm wired where I generally am happy most days. I mean, at least see the glass half full. But when I'm not, I've just learned over time that just smiling at somebody, and I keep smiling until somebody smiles back, then all of a sudden it changes. And um, I do know from experience that does work, as you were talking about the Buddha saying to check it out. Yeah. I mean, even something like for me, because we have a cat, is... Uh, you know, making the cat feel good by knowing how to pet it in the way that it likes to be pet, instead of like, I need you to be the way I want you to be. It's still like really tuning in to like what the cat wants, right? And then if the cat is experiencing a lot of pleasure because of something I'm able to do, that feels good, right? I mean, so why don't we master that basic move because that's not just exclusive to the cat. We can be generous to ourselves. We can be generous to anybody, even to the world at large, picking up some trash. Yeah, Thanks, John, for that example. Who would like to go next? Any example of like that happiness of non-remorse around morality that you've noticed in your life? or the very real suffering of neglecting morality? Yeah, please. Say your name, too, if you don't mind. My name's, my name's Rhea, and um, I was thinking about what you said. Um, a lot of times when I'm doing something, afterwards, the first thing that tends to happen is me and whoever I'm with 
saying like, oh, that was really a good movie or like that was really fun or even relating stuff to like past things. And I was wondering what's a way to just enjoy things without having to like say, oh, that was really nice. Like talk about it right afterwards. Yeah. Well, one thing is just to, like in a playful way because you can we can easily get heavy handed with the Buddhist teachings. But but just in a playful way, like, you know, I find this with movies especially because they're so absorbing these days, right? And it's almost like we're in that reality for a while. And then we step out of the movie theater or, you know, the close the computer down or whatever. And then just to acknowledge, like, that's over, you know, and now we're back here again. And to like let that be a death, like whatever that was, that adventure, that absorption, that's done. And now we're back. We've landed back here and we're a little disoriented after that transition. And just to acknowledge it with the folks you're around, I think, is helpful. Because otherwise, like you suggested, we try to want to hang out in that world even when we're no longer in that world so we retell each other the scenes we really like and we're not we don't want it to have its natural death it's over it's dead it's gone what's next you know but before we jump into something new let's feel what it feels like because that's the fourth kind of happiness to realize whatever that adventure was like no matter how good the filmmakers were however compelling the film was, one of the truths of it is that it comes to an end and then it feels like this. And see, it teaches us something important about being happy. Next time I'm in that really juicy experience of watching a good movie, I'm really going to let it land, but I'm not going to forget that it's only what it is. It isn't more than what it is. It's an hour and 20 minutes of delusion, but juicy delusion, right? (laughs) And then it ends, and then it's really gone. And trying to hold on to it is suffering. But letting it have its natural death, then it it just was what it was. It was just like a break, you know? Or we could escape for a moment or two. Thanks. Yeah, I think we need to end it here. It's 9 o'clock, so we'll just take a moment. Actually, you can pass it to Kevin over here. He'll... Well, let's just take a few seconds just to take a breath together and let go of the words. Thanks for coming, everyone. Always good to be here together. And for folks who are new, Common Ground Now for 25 years, and by the way, uh, we had a great visiting teacher, Joseph Goldstein, in July to help us celebrate our 25th anniversary, and we have a really great video of that, which should get online real soon. If you were unable to come to that event, you might want to catch that when you get a chance. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.
donate.